Good morning. My name is Ken, and I have the privilege of sharing with you a message from God's Word on a pretty significant, important topic to him this morning. So I have been praying and really hope to get it right, because it's really close to Jesus' heart. You've probably figured out that Christmas is coming, and there are a number of traditions that happen at Christmas, one of them being the notorious Christmas list. And nowadays, you can do it on Boog Space, and I'm sure there's all kinds of other apps. We used to do it on paper in the old style. Um, but there's a couple of advantages, and there's some disadvantages with the Christmas list. The advantage of a Christmas list, if you ask someone what they would like for Christmas and they give you their list, there's a good chance that what you get them, they'll actually use and enjoy. <clears throat> the negative side to that is, <clears throat> if you ask someone for their Christmas list, there's a bit of an expectation that you actually buy something from the list. Because it'd be very offensive if you ask for the list and then you just say, nah, don't want to buy any of that. And so um, the question to you this morning would be, if God would tell you what's really, really important to him, not for Christmas, if God would tell you the most important thing to him, would you actually reorganize your life accordingly? Just like if someone would tell you what's really important for Christmas, would you actually go out and buy it? The stakes are a lot higher on this one. I invite you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 22. We're going to pick it up in verse 34. Matthew 22, uh, starting in verse 34. But when the Pharisees heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. Now, if you've been following with us, we've been in, in this series uh, in Matthew, and Jesus has been leaning hard on the Pharisees. Jesus has been leaning kind of hard on the hypocrisy of the religious leaders. Why was he leaning so hard on them? Because he loved them. A lot of times we, we see the word Pharisee in the Bible, and we think hypocrite, and, and we, we, we look at them negatively. And, but Jesus actually loved them. One of the reasons was the Pharisees actually did what the Word of God said to the letter, but they just lost the intent of it. And I think some of us who've been Christians a long time can relate to that. He'd been, been leaning kind of hard on them and been teaching them. And one of them, a lawyer, asked Jesus a question to test him. It wasn't a test to see if Jesus would pass it. It was a test to try to fail him. And the question was this, teacher, what is the great commandment in the law? What's the most important thing? If we're gonna, I, I mean, I know everything's important, but if I was just going to get one thing right, Jesus, what would I have to do to be right with God? And, and like we've been following along, Jesus has been, been leaning hard on the religious leaders and what they were doing rather than sit back and actually consider what God's been saying to them or Jesus has been saying to them, they were trying to distract him. And a couple weeks ago, they, they had a political question. Should we give taxes or not? Then last week, we had a theological question. What happens after we die? Now it's a legal question. It's a technicality, trying to catch Jesus on a technicality of the law. And I want you to note, this was not an honest question. See, they already had their politically correct answers. In fact, the Jews, the religious leaders, they, they spent their entire life cataloging and, and organizing the law and trying to figure out so they don't miss any. And what they did, the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch, they came up with 613 specific laws or instructions, and they put them into 613. Now, how did they come to that number? Well, we don't know for sure. But here's my guess is they were, they were somewhere around between 600 and 630 
And then someone added up all the letters of the Hebrew alphabet that were used in the Ten Commandments, and they found out there was 613 separate letters used in the Ten Commandments themselves, so they figured, let's make it 613. And because that felt more spiritual to them. And then what they did is they separated the laws into positive and negative laws, the thou shalt and the thou shalt not. And they, and they came up with 248 thou shalt or positive laws, the exact same number of human parts and organs in the body. And they came up with 365 negatives, thou shalt not. And they came up with those because there's 365 days in the solar year. And they somehow thought that was more spiritual if they linked it to those things. I, I don't actually think that's why God had that many instructions, but that may, may, meant something to them. And then what they did is they further categorized them into the weighty laws and the non-weighty laws. The mandatory laws, the one you got to make sure you do, and then the optional laws. And we look at all that and we think that's crazy, but don't we kind of do the same thing? Don't we kind of have the, the, the laws that we're going to make sure we follow and then the laws that, yeah, yeah, I know we're supposed to, but we kind of do the same thing with sins, don't we? Don't we have our list of pardonable, or, uh, pardonable sins and unpardonable sins? That one's easy to categorize because the unpardonable sins are the ones that other people commit. <laughs> right? The pardonable ones are the ones for me to commit. Did you know that worrying is a sin? It's one of the pardonable ones, right? I mean, if I stood up here and said, you know, I had an affair this week, you'd say, you know, get him off of here, right? But if I said, I was worrying this week, you'd say, yeah, totally, I know what you mean. Bonding moment. We do the same kind of things. My point is, they'd already figured out, no, here's the problem. In, in Israel, no one had actually agreed upon which were the weighty sins and which the w ones weren't, and they had kind of like denominations. You see what a denomination is? It doesn't mean you don't believe the other truths in the Bible, but a denomination emphasizes certain truths, like we're Baptists, so we kind of emphasize baptism to the degree to which we actually baptize people in the ocean when it's cold. That's really important to us. It doesn't mean we don't believe the other beliefs. Pentecostals, what do they emphasize? Pentecost, the Holy Spirit. That doesn't mean they don't believe in baptism. Charismatics emphasize the spiritual gifts. Missionary Alliance emphasize the alliance movement. The Lutherans emphasize the teachings of Martin Luther. Mennonites emphasize, uh, Men I'm sorry, emphasize the teachings of Menno Simons. We, they, they, we're denominations. We emphasize different things. And the Jews had already decided so there were these little camps. And so the, the question was not so much to discredit Jesus this time, but to, to kind of disband his following. And, and he'd pick one of these denominations and it would kind of, you know, make his popularity less and, and he would divide the loyalty. That was the intent. Jesus actually surprised them by not picking any one of their little denominational emphasis. Jesus actually recited the command that they had already said that morning. Because every, every good Jew would just get up in the morning and at the end of the night and they would recite, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. And that's what Jesus said. This, if you want to know the big kahuna, the most important, this is it. I want you to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. Isn't that interesting? The action that God wants most from you today is to love. When you think of the Ten Commandments and how they start, what do you think of? And God spoke all these words to Israel saying, a lot of us think we start with thou shalt not, but it doesn't. The Ten Commandments start, and God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who rescued you out of the land of Egypt, who rescued you out of slavery. I am the Lord your God who saved you, who rescued you. Therefore, don't have any other gods. It makes sense. 
out of what I've already done. Why does God start with love in what he wants from us? Because God always starts with love in giving to us. He doesn't want our obedience because, he did, because we're just obeying. He actually wants our obedience and everything we do to actually flow out of what God's done for us. In Romans chapter 12, verse 1 and 2, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of what? In view of God's mercy, offer your body, bodies as a living sacrifice. It would make sense. I've rescued you. God actually wants us to do everything we do out of love for him, not out of duty. The way I see it, there's four possible motives for which we can do anything in this world. Now, I can buy my wife flowers, four possible reasons. I can do it out of duty. I'm husband and that's what we're supposed to do. I can do it out of fear, right? Because I heard Pastor Cliff over at Langley Campus buys his wife Erin flowers, and if my wife and Erin are ever talking, then you know she's going to find out, and so I buy them out of fear. Or I can buy them out of bargaining. You scratch my back, I scratch your back. I know that if I buy my wife flowers, I'll kind of butter her up, and then if I want to spend a little extra time working on my motorcycle, we're all good. Or I can buy them out of love. Which do you think means the most to my wife? Out of love. Here's the challenge. My wife won't necessarily know. Well, we've been married 35 years. She can figure it out. But God always knows. Why did you come to church this morning? This is tricky, right? Because a lot of us come out of duty. This is what we do. Some come out of fear. Some come out of bargaining. Lord, I'm going to do this. Some of us actually think coming to church is our ministry. I'm going to do this so that you do this. A lot of us can come to God with a lot. A lot of times we obey God because we're afraid if we don't, bang. Or we obey God or we do what he asks us to do so that he answers our prayers. Or we can come out of love. How do you actually upgrade? How do you actually upgrade and then this is the challenge of religiosity. This is the challenge of being a Christian for a number of years. We forget our first love. So how do you upgrade your motivation from duty, fear, or bargaining to love? How do you do that? Well, you remember what God did for you. What, did God, what has God rescued you from? Did you remember when you became a Christian? Do you remember what happened? What has God rescued you from? And the longer we're Christians, the, the easier it is to forget what, what God actually did for us. What has God rescued me from? I've written this down because I actually put it in my life statement or my life plan. I create a new life plan every, every 90 days. And I always start off with, what has God done for me? And this is what I wrote recently. God has rescued me from a life absorbed with proving my worth through success, material wealth, and reputation. He has saved me from destroying my life through alcohol, for, through perfectionism, through drivenness. He accepts me as I am and has given me a purpose for living. He has been patient with me in my pride and given me second chance after second chance after second chance. He has forgiven me and has taken away the shame in my heart. He has declared me valuable, holy, and blameless in his sight. What has God done for you? See, that's how you do it. Now, this isn't a mind game. This is what's really important to God. This is how I actually do, not all the time, but when I kind of get into the duty routine. 
This is how I actually, wait a minute, this is what God's done for me and then let it all flow out of love. In other words, God wants you to agapify the motive for everything you do. Make, it, make love the motive for everything you do. This is something we can do. It's a, we do it in our heads. We do it in our minds. There's a switch for which we do things. If you're in a community group, you know what I'd love you to do this week? Before you get into the questions, actually start off with, what has God done for me? And don't, st- and, and it's important, but don't go with God saved me from hell. We get that. If you're a Christian, God saved all of you from hell. Specifically, what has God done for you, which would, could be the motivation for which you love him back? I want to address those of you who don't know Jesus Christ personally. These are people, again, affectionately we call non-Christians versus Christians. It doesn't, we love you, we're glad you're here, part of our church. Probably 20% of our church would fit into that category. There's good news and bad news for you. You can't actually do this. If if you don't know God personally, if you've never invited him into your life and your heart, you actually can't love him with all your heart, soul, and mind. You, You can't actually do that because you're not rescued yet. You're still in Egypt. You're still in bondage. You might not know that. You might think you're living, you're, you know, you're living for yourself, uh, but you're in bondage. You're trapped. God said in Jeremiah 2 verse 13, he said, my people have committed two sins, and a lot of people live this way. First of all, we've forsaken God. We decided we're going to do life on our own. We're going to do life on our own way. I'm going to be God in my life. And then so, so if we've forsaken God, the spring of living water, and then the second mistake we make is we try to create cisterns, because he's using the water analogy. We try to create cisterns, Broken cisterns that won't hold water. You know what a cistern is? In the prairies, you would, you would create a concrete bunker as part of your house on the farm. And then that would, that you'd trap all the rainwater, and that would be your cistern, so you'd have water for when things get dry. What God's saying is, is a, if you've chosen to live your life apart from God, he's promised to fill our hearts with unconditional love and purpose and meaning for life. If you try to fill your life, uh, 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 live your life apart from God, you have to find something to fill your heart. And you will fill it with sex. You'll fill it with success. You'll fill it with money. You'll fill it with friendships. You'll fill it with good service. You'll fill it with all kinds of stuff. You can be in church and be doing all this. But it won't bring a, you life. I remember when I became a Christian. I shared a little bit of the story a little while ago, but I was, I was drunk. It was 2 o'clock in the morning. And I gave my life to Christ. Basically, I said, okay, God, if you can do something better with it, go ahead. I was 19 years old. I woke up the next morning, and I remember, for me, two things were different. I felt unconditional love for the first time. And I, I was loved by my parents. I was loved by other people, I'm sure, someone. <laughs> but I felt unconditional love. And the second thing has not gone away is I felt purpose. I didn't know what my purpose in life was. I certainly didn't think it was going to be a pastor, and I didn't really want it to be a pastor. In fact, if God would have told me I'd have to be a pastor if I became a Christian, I would have thought, hmm, pastor, tomato, hell, tomato, tomato, you know, last thing I wanted to do. But that unconditional love, you know what that means for me? I've got one person. You know when you try to do something right, and your motives are, even your motives are right, and you, you blow it? There's someone that knows my heart, even if no one else knows there's someone that loves me. And that means the world to me. As importantly for me, to know my life has a purpose is so important to me, so valuable. That this life's not the main event. My life's got a bigger purpose than that. 
The good news for you, if you're not a Christian, is that God actually isn't asking you to love him with all your heart, soul, and mind. He's asking you to open up your heart and let him pour in his love to you so that you've got something to love him back with. There'll be an opportunity at the end of the service if you want to pray that. Jesus in this passage, love your Lord your God in all your heart, soul, and mind. He's actually quoting a longer passage from Deuteronomy chapter 4 that starts off this way. And every good Jew would say in the morning, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and all your mind. These commandments that I give you today are to be upon your hearts. Impress them to your children. Talk about them when you lie down and when you get up, when you sit at home and when you walk along the road. So what the Jews would do is they would actually, they took four passages of scripture and they wrote, wrote them out on parchment. Oh, it also says, you shall tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. You shall write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates, these commands. So what they would do is they'd get little leather boxes and they would write little, little passages of scripture and they'd put them in the boxes and they would tie them around their wrists. And they'd put another box around their forehead. That's how they tied the commands of God on their hands and, and their forehead. I think they kind of missed the point. And we can laugh at that, but it's kind of like us wearing a cross. Or getting a tattoo, John 3.16 or whatever it is, on our arms. And then what they would do, the the commands, God wanted to write them on the door frames of their houses and on their gates. He he, he kind of meant to to make them part of everyday life. And what it is, they wrote them on the door frames of their houses and their gates. Kind of like us putting a fish sign in the back of our car. Thinking that's going to lead people to Christ. No, that's what they did. But the part that they missed is their hearts. These commands I give you today are to be upon your hearts. God wants us to love him with all our hearts, to invite him in every area of our lives and actually change the motive for which we do everything. He wants us to love. I fell in love with my wife when I was 15 years old. I remember the moment. We were on a youth retreat, a youth camp out. And at the end of the retreat, and we'd been hanging out as friends for a bit, and uh, for, for a while, but a couple of years. And... Um, in fact, I think we were actually dating as much as we could date when we were 14 and 15. It worked well because both of our parents were in the same Bible study, so I'd sneak over to her house during Bible study. And that, that's how we did the dating part, right? Anyway, so we're on this youth retreat. At the end of the youth retreat, we're sitting on this little bridge, and there was a little creek uh, there, and she, she jumped into the creek. And I said, what did you do that for? And she says, because I'm going to tell everybody that you pushed me in, and they're going to believe me. <laughs> and that's the moment I fell in love with her. What, what, what do I mean when I fell in love? Why did I fall in love with her? Because I thought she was different. She had a backbone. You know, she, she, she had substance. And what do I mean when I say I fell in love with her? Well, the word would be storge phileros. See, that's, that's the three types of love that, that I experienced there. See, we, we use love. Love is such an overused word. I love sushi. I love my job. I love my motorcycle. I love my wife. I love the Lord. It's such an over, overused word. And we only got one word to describe all kinds of things. The Greek and the Hebrew, they had all kinds of words. And the three words that, that I felt, felt, for my, or felt for my wife at age 15 was storge phalera. Storge is the love that just, uh, it's the love that a child uh, feels from the parent. I just can be myself. It's a safety and security love. I can just be myself. And then another part of love is the phileo love. That's the brotherly love. That's the love that you and I hang out together. We feel good together. It's you scratch my back, I scratch your back. And I'll love you because you love me. And then there's the eros love. That's the electricity kind of love. That's where the hormones get involved, the chemistry that causes someone to actually want to put their lips on someone else's lips and even, not even consider the disease they might get, right? right? Just, that's, that's the eros love. It just overrides. Storge phileros, put all those together. That's what gets people at the altar, storge phileros. 
I made up that word. Just put all the loves together, but that's what we feel. Storge Phalaris. Say that to your wife. I Storge Phalaris you. <laughs> that's the kind of love that gets people to the altar. It's not the kind of love that makes marriages last, though. See, you and I, when we talk about love, we think we're, we're passive, right? And, and we think of love as something happens outside of us that just causes all these warm Campbell's soup kind of feelings to well up inside of us. But the love that Jesus is talking about here in the scripture is an entirely different kind of love. It's agape love. It's a decision love. And, and though, though it's not void of emotion, it doesn't depend on emotion, nor does it depend on the, uh, the, the ability of the receiver to reciprocate. It's an executive decision kind of love. It's the kind of love that says, I am deciding today to do something good for you with nothing in it for me. That's the agape love. So when God, Jesus is saying, I want you to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, it doesn't even necessitate your emotions in the moment, which is great news because we can actually do this. We can actually love God when we don't feel close to God. We can love God when we don't feel like loving God, when we don't feel like obeying. We can actually do this because it's not dependent upon emotions. I was impressed with Mother Teresa's journals. I didn't read them personally, but I've, I've heard them quoted. Mother Teresa, most of you know who she is. She did all kinds of great work in, in Calcutta for the Lord. And she had some really, really dark seasons in her life. We didn't know that. She, we would call it depression. In her journals, there were dark seasons, years. And in one of her journals, she wrote, but Lord, this day I seek to love you like you have never been loved before. Jesus, I want to love you like you've never been loved before. Even though I'm not feeling any love to you. I have dark seasons as a Christian. I have dark seasons as a pastor. Sometimes when you think as pastors, you, know, you always you open the word of God and just, God just pours his love out. No, sometimes I barely feel anything. Just like you. I used to think when I became a pastor I'd feel more spiritual. You don't. You can love God even when you don't have the same feelings. And then God gives us the scope. He says, God, he wants us to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and your mind or your strength. Your heart was the, the, the core, the center, the control center of your being. But the, the soul in Hebrew, Jesus is actually quoting from the Hebrew, and the soul in Greek is the mind, will, and the emotions. But the soul in Hebrew is, is the same word as breath of God. When God breathed into you, you became a living being. Human beings do things that the animal kingdom doesn't. We dream, we regret, we plan, we envision we make decisions, we love, we, we override our emotions. What God is saying, I want you to, to love me with all of the living beingness in your life, the day-to-day -day things, all the things that you do. You parent, you build relationships, you dream, you plan, you organize, every little thing you do. And then the, the, I want to love you with all your strength. The, word, the Hebrew word is actually muchness. It has to do with your abundance and your possessions. And what Jesus, and that would make a great three-point sermon. Love your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. But what God's really saying is the everything part of you. In other words, God wants us to agapify the motives behind everything we do. Full disclosure. The Village Church, we want to see Jesus transform every single area of your life. We've nailed it down to five. We want God to transform your mind, your beliefs. We want God to transform your emotions and your heart. We want God to transform your relationships, your marriage, your romantic relationships, your friendships, and your sexuality. We want God to, to transform um, your, your, your priorities, your, your balance in life. 
This is really important because some of us are not balanced at all. We're way too stressed out. We're driving our kids around every single sport that there is. And then we put them in spring hockey and summer hockey and fall hockey. And we don't realize that our kids probably aren't going to make the NHL. We need a different retirement plan than that. But we're so busy. We don't have any time for each other. And therefore our marriages are going to fall apart. We fall out of love. We don't have any time for God because our priorities are out of whack. And then the fifth area we want God to transform your life is your finances, your work, your vocations. We want God to transform all of these areas, but we want him to do it out of love. How does it actually look? How do we want God to transform your mind? Some of you don't know the Jesus you accepted. You might be a believer, but you don't really know. We want you to go to Alpha. Yeah, we're going to run Alpha again. We're not sure exactly the format, but Alpha is a place over dinner. You sit down and you figure out your beliefs. Who is Jesus? Why did he have to die? How can I have faith? How and why should I read the Bible? How does God guide us? Who is the Holy Spirit? How can I be filled with the Holy Spirit? Yes, we want God to transform your beliefs. If you already know, and if you, maybe you're not a Christian, we'd love you to go to Alpha to find out if you actually want to be, but we want you to know going into it who he is, how much he loves you. Then secondly, if you're already a Christian, we really want God to transform your beliefs. We want you to read the Bible. We want to teach you how to read Scripture in a meaningful way so that you can open to, At the end of the day, you can say, this is what my best understanding of what God said to me is. And we want to move you to the place that if God and I disagree, God's right and I'm wrong, and I do it out of love. And we want God, nextly, we want God to transform your emotions. That's your affections. That's one of the reasons why we want you to get involved at Village. What you're involved in, what you do, you begin to love. What you invest in, you begin to love. Your emotions follow. Well, your, your actions on this. A lot of times we wait until our emotions are there and then we act. No, you can do it the other way. But there's another aspect of your emotions we want to God transform. And that's your brokenness, your hearts. That's why we offer Freedom Session. We offer a ministry, and it's, it's, there's still registration. There's still room for men. There's still probably room for another 10 women. we got room for about another 20, 30 men. We want God to transform your emotions. Why? Because when push comes to shove, it's what you believe in your heart that controls your life. And Satan is controlling some of our lives because of the shame and the guilt and the fear. Some of you feel worthless. Some of you feel like damaged goods. Why? There's, there's stories. There's experiences you had and, and, and you were hurt and Satan put a lie in your, in, your, in your heart at that point and you're still controlled by that lie. Some of you live with shame. That's why you've got the last 10%. You're not going to tell anybody. There's secrets in your lives. You're not going to tell anybody. And you're lonely. And so we want God, yeah, loving God with all your heart would be inviting God into your emotions and your heart. And I'm not going to reserve this part from you. I want you to actually heal that and let God heal that and transform that. So that you can actually serve out of love. Because right now you have to serve out of duty and ought and fear. Because that's all you've known. And your marriage and sexuality, yeah, and we want God to be the motive. You know, Joseph was, Joseph, the Old Testament was one of the, uh, in terms of sexuality. Uh, why did he not sleep with Potiphar's wife, if you know the story? Uh, a woman came to him, good-looking woman, wanted to sleep with him, wanted to go to bed with him. And what did he say? How can I sin against God? He, did he want to sleep with her? Probably. How can I sin against God? His motive for purity was actually God. And the Holy Spirit lives inside of us. If we would just take this, if we'd agapify our motive for why we don't watch certain shows, it's because I don't want the Holy Spirit to have to watch that. If you're single, the Holy Spirit lives inside of you. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 says, Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? And so is the person I'm dating. And I don't want the Holy Spirit to have to be pawing and groping all over her. Because that hurts him. 
If we want to love the Lord with all our heart, soul, and mind, first we've got to stop unloving him. And one of the ways we stop unloving him is doing things that he feels uncomfortable doing. You know the chalkboard thing? You see your fingernails on the chalkboard? Some of the things we do, that's what the Holy Spirit must feel like. Ah, I don't want to watch. I don't want to see that. I don't want to think that. That's, that's loving the Lord your God with, in, in our relationships. God wants us to date our wives and our husbands because, because God wants us to. We actually do it out of love for him when you can't do it out of love for yourself. Our priorities you talked about, even your work. I learned this from a guy named Gord. He was a wood grader all day long. He graded wood. Two by fours, good, bad, that's it. How did he do that? Well, his spiritual gift was shepherding. His spiritual gift was pastoring. And so he looked at his job as, I do this to fuel my calling and my ministry. I do this, and he led small groups in an earlier church that I was part of. I, I grade wood all day long so that I can fulfill my calling. And when we were church planning back in 96 or whatever, I actually had to practice that because we were church planning and we started out with a core group of five and that included our family of five. And so we didn't have a salary, didn't have people, and we ran out of food, so, so we had to do some work. So I had to carry wood for a living. Three days a week I would carry wood, and I'm, I don't know construction, so I had to carry wood. And the people knew I was planning a church and they would actually mock me. You know, what kind of a church, what kind of a God you have? You can't even get a salary. They were mocking me. And so I did decided, based on what Gord taught me, I decided I am I'm going to be the best wood carrier that I can be. I want to be the best wood carrier so all the journeyman carpenters actually want me to be their helper. That's how I made meaning out of it. I had to create meaning and I had to do it for God. And then what happened after a while, they started and I actually succeeded in that. I became the best wood carrier there was. And then they actually started to want to talk about God. That, that's what I mean. You know, some of you, you know, we're all called to, to ministry. If you're a Christian, God's called you to ministry, but most of you have to make your living somewhere else. Use it as an opportunity to, to, to provide for yourself and your family so that it can fuel your calling. Some of your calling is to help raise grandchildren, raise your children, to change, your, change your motivation. Agapify everything you do. Now, is this a mind game? No, it's what Jesus really wants. This is really important to Jesus. He'll feel loved when you do that. When you give money to the church, don't give it because that's just what you do. Give it because you love everything you do. If you're going to retire, retire with a purpose. Jesus was doing okay in front of his religious critics. He'd stumped them, and then he adds this other one. He says, there's a second commandment. You got that one. There's a second commandment. You, you should love your neighbor as yourself. And it's, it's the second commandment is like it. And that's where he got in a lot of trouble. Be because a lot of us and the Jews actually thought you could be right with God, but not right with your neighbor, not right with your wife, not right with your husband, not right with your kids, not right with your family, not right with your worship team, not right with your children, not right with your employees. And so do we actually believe we can be right with God and not right with it. We can't. Jesus is saying you cannot love God with all your heart, soul, and mind if you're not willing to love the people around you. And why is that true? Because Jesus loves and God loves the people you hate as much as he loves you. My wife and I are parents of adult children right now, which is a heck of a lot trickier <laughs> than parents of little children. They never told us that. But anyway, let's say at Christmas time, they, come, they all come together. And if they, they come together and they, I love you, Dad, what do you, you know, what do you want most? And if they're not getting along with each other, that's going to hurt me. And I said, what I really want is you to get along here. 
well, I don't want to get along here. Well, that's going to affect my relationship with them. I'm still their father. They're still my son. I still love them. But, but the closeness is going to be different. And some of us feel far from God because we're not right with other people. And it's not always possible to be right with all people. That's why in Romans chapter 12 it says, if it is possible as far as it depends on you, live at peace with all men. It's not always possible to live at peace with all men. They might not want to live at peace, but I can do what I can and I can choose to love them. The good news is it's the agape kind of love which doesn't depend on my emotion, nor does it depend on their willingness to pay me back. In fact, I don't even have to like them. It's helpful if I like them, but I don't have to like them. And I'm not making light of it. But remember I said God wants us to agapify the motives in everything we do? Why does God want you to love your neighbor out of what he's done for you? And that's really practical when it's someone you don't like or when it's someone who's hurt you because when someone hurts you, I go back to phileo love. You scratch my back, I scratch your back. But if you hit my back, I'll hit your back. And you're, you're, you know, I treat you like you will treat me. He says, no. I want you to agapify your love. If you love me, then I also want you to love other people, the people around you. God's actually quoting, or Jesus is actually quoting from Leviticus 19. There's this passage, 19 verses 9 to 18, and it's this list of laws on how we should love other people. I'm not going to read it all, just summarize it. But this, this is the set of laws. It says, don't be stingy or selfish. In other words, when you harvest, don't go right to the edge and make a second pass because there's poor people that are going to need some food. So don't be stingy or selfish. Then he's got a trio. Don't steal, don't lie, don't profane the, nor- the, the uh, name of the Lord your God. And by the way, after each of these sets, he says, don't be stingy. Don't, don't go, go, go past your field twice and take all the harvest. I am the Lord your God. And then he says, don't steal, don't, uh, don't lie, don't deceive each other, tell the truth, don't profane, don't use the name of the Lord your your God in vain. I am the Lord your God. Then he says, don't take advantage of the weak. Don't defraud your neighbor. Don't hold back the wages of the hired man. I am the Lord your God. Then he says, don't gossip. Don't slander. Don't talk negatively about another person. Don't risk your neighbor's health. I am the Lord your God. And then the last one, he says, don't hold bitterness in your heart towards your neighbor, but rebuke him when necessary. I like that. You see, being a Christian doesn't mean we sweep everything under the carpet. There are times, in, whether you have a Christian brother or sister, or maybe even not, there are times you can speak the truth in love. In fact, we're required to speak the truth in love because otherwise we will have bitterness in our hearts. And a lot of us have made peace our God, and we won't say what we're really feeling because we don't want to rock the boat. But the problem is it becomes bitterness in our heart, and God says don't be bitter in your heart because then you're going to want to take a revenge. So he says, actually, stand up to your neighbor, speak the truth, but still love him or her. Observation here. This list of how to love your neighbor, they're all in the negative. Don't, 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 except the last one, but love your neighbor as yourself. You know, the Jews, the the rabbis, they actually had their version of the golden rule that Jesus talked about earlier in Matthew. Is uh, doing to others as you would have them do unto you. The, the Jews actually flipped around and they said, that which you would hate others to do to you, don't do to them. But here's a key. Not unloving you doesn't mean I'm loving you. Just because I'm not unloving you, just because I'm not hurting you, that doesn't mean I'm actually loving you. Love is, a, love is an additional step. Love is an intention to actually do good to you, not just to not do bad to you. In other words, if you're a spouse, a, a husband, just, being not, just, just because you're not being unfaithful to your wife doesn't mean you're being faithful. There's another step. 
God's actually asking us to choose to love. So if I'd go back through that, through that set of commands, don't be stingy, don't harvest your crop right to the very edge because there's poor people. How would you make that a positive? So I said to agapify all your motives, but also positify, that's not a word either, but it works. Make positive instead of that when there's a negative command, think about what the positive command could be. So don't be stingy, what would that mean? Well, it might mean as simple as, you know, you're gonna buy a new car and you don't, you don't actually need the money, give the car away. You don't have to sell everything. <laughs> I say you don't have to give away a car, but, but really, if you don't need the money, why not? Why not bless someone? Why not bless a young couple? You got a washer and dryer, you're buying a new one because you don't like the color of the old one. Find someone that needs one. It's just something simple like that. When it talks about don't gossip, what would be the positive about, what is gossip? Gossip is talking negatively about someone without them present. What would be the positive? Try prayer. Use your words to encourage. If you can't figure out something to say, good, then don't say it, but pray. Pray for them. Pray that God changes their heart, their lives. We can go through the whole list and you can positify all of them. And that'd be a worthy study. In fact, if you're in community groups, it'd be a good idea. Leviticus chapter 19, 9 to 18, just go through all that list and say, what would be the positive application if I would do something, this is how I'm not gonna unlove, but this is how I'm gonna love. You know where that's practical? It makes it a heck of a lot more fun. See, just not being unfaithful to my wife is not something I'm willing to die for. But being faithful to her, loving her would be. Same with the kids, same with the Lord. I always think of something I want to do, invest. Lastly, I'm not going to spend much time on this, but there's a corporate application. Usually I try to just focus on the personal application, but there's a corporate application to this. How are we going to do this as a church? If these are the two most important priorities of Jesus, to love God with all our heart, soul, and strength and love each other as ourselves, shouldn't we organize ourselves in a way that makes this happen? So here's the question to you. Who knows if you're loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind? Who knows? Who knows the last thing God spoke to you? Who knows in your life how Satan's trying to take you out? Who knows the condition of your marriage? Who knows? Does anyone know? I'm pastor of discipleship, so part of my role, and I'm feeling the weight of this, part of my role is to try and create the systems by which we can be that kind of authentic community. There's a book I read years ago called No Man Left Behind, and in that, in that book I realized or I learned that sometimes enemy snipers, when they're fighting the Navy SEALs, they'll actually wound one of the soldiers instead of kill them because they know if they wound a soldier, there's gonna be one or two other Navy SEALs that come to get that man, no man left behind. Do you have a couple of people in your corner? We, run a, we have run a ministry called Authentic Living, and uh, we've been running that, and I was thinking about that, and the, the original reason why we created Authentic Living years ago is because a lot of churches, they, they're not authentic. And so we created a course, and churches run it, and then we're running it here, and we're actually we're expanding it, and we're trying to create little communities in this course, and we're teaching authentic living, and it dawned on me, that's ridiculous. Why are we teaching a course on authentic living? Why, not, why don't we take our community groups, the organizational model that we already have, and try to lead them to go deeper until we are actually an authentic community when we're talking about the things, what's the last thing God said to you? Where are you struggling to keep it? What are you going to do about it? What kind of support do you need to become the man or woman of God you want to be? Where are you struggling in your marriage? How can we pray for you? How can we hold you accountable? But 
we can create all the systems we want, but it will actually take some of us to be willing to step into that level of community, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and love your neighbors yourself, and have a few people along the journey who know how well I'm doing in that area, not to condemn us, but to help us to become who God wants us to be. You're gonna be hearing more about that in the next year or so. My encouragement to you is this next year in January, when you're starting to do your New Year's resolutions, if you do that, would you include stepping into authentic community? Not a course. Would you include bringing someone into your life who actually knows how you're doing? Who, will, where, who you can tell where God's speaking to you, where he wants you to love him more, where he wants you to love the people in your life? Because that would help us become the type of people uh, corporately who love God with all their heart, soul, and mind. Lord Jesus, some of us here realize that we're in the non-Christian camp and we don't know how to love you with all our heart, soul, and mind because we've never experienced unconditional love. And that's tweaked according to our heart. And if that describes you, you can pray this prayer. Lord Jesus, I invite you into my heart and my life. I need that kind of love that we're talking about here today. I'm asking you to forgive my sins. I've blown it, Lord. I've made mistakes. Sometimes I've tried hard. Sometimes I haven't. I've done life my own way. It's not working. And if you really are who you say you are, if you are the Son of God, I invite you and ask you to forgive my sins and come into my life and take over the leadership. And then for some of us who've been serving out of ought, duty, fear, bargaining. Jesus, I'm sorry. I've been doing these things out of habit and I realized today that you want me to come back to my first love and actually do them out of love. So remind me of what you've done for me. Remind me of the deep love that you had for me. Remind me of all the little miracles, the little answers to prayers, the times that you met me, the times that I said I would never again doubt you. Remind me of those. Fill my heart with love and receive my offering. This week, Lord, I want to give you my life to live out every day. The way I raise my children, the way I drive, the way I work, the way I save my money, the way I spend my money, what I view on TV, what I think in my mind. I want to offer all these things as worship to you. And then, Lord, I ask you to bring to my mind the people in my life that I'm not in right relationship with, the ones that you would say, can you cannot love me the way I want if you're not willing to love these people? And then show me, tell me right now, bring to my mind what you want me to do. Because I do want to love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Have a great week. Agapify your motives and everything you do. And enjoy Sterge Faleros where you can.